Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Dr. Brady Bouchard. Dr. Mike Curlew, how you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Keeping it real? Yeah, keeping it real. Excellent, excellent. In Victoria with the Azaleas, which I now know what they are. There you go, in Victoria with the Azaleas. You know what? I'm glad you're expanding your horizons. Yeah, exactly. Brady Bouchard, what a Lance romance you are. <laughs> oh my God, dude. Lance romance, exactly. Yeah. Hi, hon. I know what a Azalea is. Yeah, it's a pretty low bar to, to cross. <laughs> I know, exactly. Forget jewelry. Yeah. How does knowledge sound? <laughs> knowledge. Ah, uh, God. There you go. So how, how are things in uh, in uh, in Victoria doing? Yeah, no, it's lovely. What's the temperature there right now? Oh, dude, it's the same thing every time you ask. It's probably, I'm going to guess, 10 degrees. Let's look. There you go. It's exactly. almost You're a... such a sellout of your prairie roots. You yeah. know that? It's 9 degrees right now. There you go. You're We're a close. sellout. <laughs> You're a sellout of your prairie roots. Yeah, it got down to a very chilly two degrees last night. Oh, a chilly! Ooh, you had to wear a sweater, Doctor Bouchard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, God. You're totally selling out on your prairie roots, my man. I freely admit it. Where the wind it. chill is like minus seventy-five, and now you're like, oh, it's two degrees. Yeah. Oh, the winter's chill. Can we get some azalea tea, please, and some hot cocoa? <laughs> I I think all the years in Australia turned me a bit too because. They they don't have anything even coming close to winter. So, there you go. Uh, it was uh, it, it it varied between uh hot and like surface of the sun. There you go. Yeah. You you know what that is that is fantastic. That is fantastic. No, Australia is a is a cool cool spot. One thing I know about um because Australia I think is based on like a British system. Is that correct? Yeah, for training. Yeah, it's all British. It was crazy. I know that you do not call surgeons doctors you call them misters and ma'ams is that not correct is that the same thing in australia if you want to royally piss off a surgeon you basically call them a doctor and they look at you like did yeah. you just spit on my face you know is that i was shocked like i I went and i was like whoa like this is serious like i, I was like mr ma'am like hi yeah. doctor so-and-so did you just say doctor to me you know yeah, I know. I don't know where that ever came from, to be honest, the history of that. But actually, You know why? Listen, oh. Brady Bouchard, you know where it yeah. came from? Because surgeons were from the College of Barber Surgeons. They're not, not applying their leeches like regular doctors. Oh. And they would, that's, that's where the barber pole has that red for bloodletting. Right. So they wouldn't want to distinguish themselves from the medical profession, right? So that's why they would go with Mr. or Ma'am as opposed to doctor. It was actually a, a higher... Uh, back in the day, like um, a more revered, respectful thing. Oh, there you go. I just learned something from Mike today. That's awesome. Per, you know, the History of Medicine Fellowship is is well and aware. There you go. Uh, what did we... Uh, DVT. DVT. I think it's a pretty short topic, eh? Exactly. I think we're getting a little deja vu because we talked about PE and the chest pain one. So we can we don't even really need to talk about PE. We've kind of beat that one to death, I think. We've kind of beaten PE, like the beaten PE with a pole. Yeah. We can basically, yeah, we can touch on it. You know what I mean? And stuff. Yeah. We can definitely touch on it and stuff. But yeah, totally. I I think we uh we we rocked that um we rocked that uh when we were talking about the wonderful world of chest pain. Yeah, exactly. And obviously they overlap or, you know, DVD can progress to PE, but um, Perfect. even looking at these two topics again and reviewing, I'm like, really, you can mostly consider them separately. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think in the chest pain topic, it was more as, as in terms of the differential for chest pain and stuff and a bad PE. Yeah. Where we could talk, you know, venous thromboembolic disease. And we can throw in some prevention there, right? Like, yeah. Just yeah, exactly. I think the only thing I could come up with in my head where they kind of directly overlap is if you had a, a patient you thought you had a high clinical probability of having a PE. You do uh, all the investigations, CTPA or VQ or whatever. Everything comes back completely normal. They're still symptomatic. And then another test you can add on there is essentially the DVT test, uh, a test of the um, lower venous system, compression duplex ultrasound. And if you have symptoms of PE with a DVT found, then you can just treat as a PE. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, interestingly enough, today I had a patient with exactly that. They actually had bilateral DVT and stuff. Um, huge bilateral DVTs and stuff. So you could make the argument um, um, we didn't elect to totally fry his kidneys with contrast yeah. um, because it wouldn't really affect our management at this particular at this particular point. Um, yeah. Definitely, you know, um, sometimes it can for risk stratification purposes. Like if you start to see a bit of an uppity troponin, a bit of a high BNP, echo looks like a little bit of RV issues and stuff. Those that 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 patient population is definitely higher risk, right? Yeah. And then you get the whole debate on how do you give thrombolytics to those people and when is your cutoff and that's that's really what we don't know about right so yeah. um, um, um we don't uh we don't know that too too well and then how do you give those thrombolytics do you kind of bolus dose do you get a half dose do you kind of run an infusion over 24 hours blah 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 blah, blah. we don't really know yeah and i think when we're talking about dvt here is a separate topic from pe again um we're by you know by definition we're not considering pe at all so if the, if you think they have symptoms of a pe they're presenting like a pe like you said if they have a troponin leak or some rv strain or something else going on up in the chest then that's that's out of this this is deep vein thrombosis as a topic for the exam is all about essentially lower limb thrombosis, exactly. thrombosis. perfect perfect no no so shall we get started dr bouchard beautiful go for it Perfect. So we're cat venous thromboembolic disease, the DVT. Yeah. We're focusing tonight on the DVT. We blasted through a lot of PE stuff on our chest bean top talk. We're not gonna we're not gonna rehash too much of it and stuff. But we're gonna be talking about the deep venous thrombosis. Perfect. So are we dealing with something common, Dr. Bouchard? Are we dealing with something that's really uber common, relatively mm. speaking? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. We're dealing with something that's really, really common and stuff, right? And, and you know what I found out is that, you know what, it's, it's, we don't spend enough time talking about prevention of EDT because you know what? D venous thromboembolic disease is uber, uber common in hospital with our hospitalized patients, right? Exactly. So we've got to remember that, that really when you have a hospitalized patient, you really have to go into DVT prevention mode, right? Because having a, um, uh, um, because having a PE in hospital is not a cool thing, right? And plus we have people who are already high risk. Right, or a lot of our patients have certain risk characteristics, it can make things even worse. Isn't that, that, isn't that not right, the sexy Dr. Bouchard? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the, the revolutions in hospital medicine over the last, I don't know, say 10 years, kind of when I, you know, just after I entered med school, was a, a real focus on every inpatient on considering them for uh, venous thromboprophylaxis uh, and for, for risk, obviously. Perfect, perfect. No, and that's very, very, uh, and that's very, very important. And that's really revolutionized. You know, I was speaking to some colleagues who've been practicing like 
for 30, 40 years and stuff. And they were saying that, like, when they were in med school, like, this was like, you know, hi, you came into rounds one day and your patients were dead. You know what I mean? And stuff. And I was like, oh, they had a DVT. So, so this has really revolutionized hospital medicine, right? Yeah, um, um, the fact that we now, um, um, we have risk tools and we can talk about some risk stratification tools out there to be able to, um, to risk stratify our medical patients and as well too as our surgical patients for their DVT risk. So uber important, Dr. Bouchard. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So maybe we'll spend a little bit of time talking about prevention. But prior to that, we have our good friend, Dr. Wells, and his wonderful criteria. Yeah, exactly. Is that not correct? Yep. Uh, so there's a Wells criteria for DVT uh, and a separate criteria for PE. So perfect. want to make sure you don't get those confused. But obviously, you're going down one route or the other um, based on what they're presenting with. Perfect. Uh, if they're presenting without chest symptoms and... Uh, otherwise, they generally present with either a swollen calf. It's usually unilateral, despite your bilateral presentation today. Uh, a swollen calf, painful calf, erythematous, where it wasn't before. Um, that's kind of your presentation where, where you're looking to apply your Wells criteria. Perfect, perfect. So the Wells criteria basically does is get this idea called pretest probability, right? Does everybody with a swollen leg have a DVT? No, of course not, right? But we're going to assign pretest probability. So it uses some clinical signs and symptoms, um, um, patient characteristics, risk factors to assign this thing called a pretest probability. So Dr. Bouchard, ream off some Wells criteria for me for DVT. Beautiful. So active cancer, which is either treatment or for palliation in the last six months. If they've been bedridden for three or more days or had major surgery in the last 12 weeks, if they have calf swelling greater than three centimeters compared to the other leg, and that's measured 10 centimeters below the tibial tuberosity, um, if there's collateral superficial veins present, uh, if the entire leg's swollen, if there's localized tenderness along the deep venous system, pitting edema confined to that one leg. Um, obviously, we get pitting edema bilaterally in lots of other conditions. Uh, paralysis, paresis, or recent uh, plaster immobilization of that limb, uh, previous documented DVT, obviously, and um, the one that always trips people up, I think, is alternative diagnosis to DVT at least is likely, and that's a, a negative score. In it. Perfect, perfect. So basically what that means is that if the person has something else going on that's really obvious, it takes away from your score, right? So the person has is, has septic shock, and their leg looks really red, and you, you and it has tons of crepitus and bulli, and you're like, oh my god, I think this person has a deep space infection in their leg, you're, you're going to be going down more that route than potentially the DVT route. Right, exactly. Excellent. I think the Wells criteria is pretty instructive too, because it was a well done study to try and where they looked at lots of different clinical signs and symptoms and tests you could do. Um, and the things that aren't in the Wells criteria, you can generally say are not that good. So um, yeah. the thing you always learn in residency, Holman sign, um, the calf squeeze for DVT really poor sign that's why it's not in the wells criteria <laughs> there you go there you go i'm sure yeah. if you squeeze anybody's calf a lot hard enough it's gonna hurt a lot dr bouchard yeah exactly yeah perfect perfect so excellent right so the wells criteria basically allows us to assign a pretest probability and then based on that pretest probability we're going to be able to say what test we're going to do next right yep. so specific cutoffs you basically, these things are weighed differently. And I wouldn't worry too, too much about memorizing the points. I just use my med calc or whatever piece of software and stuff like that, that I can have this thing down. I'm not going to walk around with that stuff in my brain. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, uh, um, um, and then based on your scoring system, you're basically going to say whether or not that person has a DVT likely or whether or not that person has DVT unlikely. Amen, yes. Dr. Bouchard? Amen. Perfect. 
And then what? The sexy Dr. Bouchard. And then what? So is he unlikely? Yeah. So so there's a couple uh, kind of pearls in here. Um, Because most people, I would say at least, um, that you think may have DVT or that come in with a presenting complaint of the GP sent them in because they think they might have a DVT, most of them still won't have one. Um, I think the good thing to remember is if they have a low clinical probability, pretest probability with Wells, and you get a negative D-dimer, then you can safely rule it out. So you don't need Perfect. to put them in the emergency department for the ultrasound or further investigations. Exactly, exactly. So if you're a low pretest probability, um, basically as was signed by your Wells score, and your D-dimer is negative, and it's a high sensitivity D-dimer, right? Not a 25-year-old D-dimer. Does that make sense? Yeah. So a high sensitivity D-dimer and stuff your newer generation one and it's negative, the person probably doesn't have a DVT and you can stop there and stuff. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. And what happens, the sexy Dr. Bouchard, if that person is high risk? So you work out and you compute their well score and you're like, crap, the well score is like five. That's a bit high risk. What am I going to do then? Yeah, exactly. So if they're, like you said, it's either unlikely or likely on wells, or you can consider it low in the one category and moderate and high. So if they're moderate to, uh, to high, then again, on the flip side, D-dimer is not really going to be helpful right there because they're higher than enough risk um, that you need to do the confirmatory test, which is uh, compression duplex ultrasound of the affected limb. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect, right? So you're going to be doing your compression duplex ultrasound. Basically, they look at the major veins and see whether or not you got any compression um, um, defects when they compress the vein. Because if you do, then we have issues. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. <laughs> do you need to take the phone, Mike? That's fine. No, I'm good. It's, it's, I'm not on call for the next two hours. I'm awesome. You know what I mean and stuff? Lovely. Awesome. You know what I mean and stuff? I'm not on call for the next two hours. So I don't know who was just calling there. <laughs> exactly. They're interrupting you. Um, and then uh, the other parts of that pathway that I, I really don't think you necessarily need to memorize, but uh, just have a look at the algorithm. It's fairly simple. So if they're moderate or high pretest probability, you do the ultrasound and you don't see a clot there, um, then you should do a D-dimer. If that D-dimer is negative, then you can safely rule it out. If D-dimer is positive in that case, that's when you need to get a repeat ultrasound between three to seven days down the road because you already thought a pre-test they had a high probability of it. The definitive test didn't show it up and you're expecting it to, so you kind of need to repeat it before you can rule it out safely. Perfect, perfect. And remember now they're doing a lot of stuff with that. Do you need, because remember most of the time when you do an ultrasound itself, they're actually doing just above the knee, right? Because the clinics see significant clots tend to be the what we call the above knee clots, right? Yep. So they're superficial to the popliteal fossa and stuff. Those are the big ones that tend to cause um, uh, PEs and the like. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, um, so they've actually done a few studies that have compared like, well, just doing an initial whole leg one. Right? So we interrogate. Now, these scans take a lot longer, and they're technically a lot more challenging to do, right? Which is most of the time when you order a scan, they're just taking a look from the popliteal fossa and above, right? Yeah. Probably if you have a single one, and it's a whole leg one, and the technician's really good, and the radiologist reading it is really good, you know, that's probably okay to just end it there in that uh, higher-risk patient. Does that make sense? But keep in mind, these scans of the whole leg of looking at the venous system, they're not easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Perfect. And then just kind of a note on D-dimer in there because it's such a hotly debated topic and attendings get really ticked off at residents who <laughs> order it, uh, just throwing it at the wall as one of the checkboxes. Um, a D-dimer is a useful test for kind of this intermediate uh, group that you want to determine. And the intermediate group is in between. On the one side, you have extremely low probability, is what I'd call it. 
uh, patients of having DVT. So essentially patients that don't even present with any symptoms of DVT, you're not inquiring about a DVT, um, they have really no risk factors for a DVT. If you just happen to check the box for a D-dimer or your nurse checks it or it's just part of the order set, if that comes back positive, that's almost always going to be a false positive and you're dooming the patient to investigations that they wouldn't need otherwise. You're kind of committed to a course that they don't need to do. Brady Bouchard, there you, you are. What do I always say, Brady? I always say <laughs> smart is the new. Sexy. Good. Brady Bouchard, you are so sexy. I'm glad you mentioned that. That is a pearl of wisdom. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't get D-dimeritis. What is D-dimeritis? Listen, if you have somebody and you think they have a DV, I, I, I mean, you really don't think that they have a DVT and you have a very good um, alternative explanation, the person is low risk. You're not getting any brownie points by ordering a D-dimer, right? Because so many things, it's not a very specific test, right? A pneumonia can cause it to go up. A cellulitis can cause it to potentially go up, right? So again, and then that's the problem. These tests come back positive and people get all up in our... Because you need extra testing. Is that crystal clear? Exactly. So if you have a good alternate diagnosis, if you're, if especially in a low-risk wealth patient, you are, um, um, I would really, really think twice about doing a D-dimer. Especially concerned about like it could be potentially infectious, right? Because D divers tend to go wacky with infection. Yeah, exactly. And you don't even necessarily need an alternative diagnosis if they're not even presenting with signs or symptoms. Because the other time I see D dimers ordered is with completely unrelated presentations. Say, yeah, you know, a patient's I don't know. Hi, my ears hurting. Oh, let's do a D dimer. You know what I mean? Is that oh, yeah, exactly. It's yeah, just part of a, a part of a panel of medica- of uh, investigations, and it really it should be a thought out process if you're going to check that box to do a D dimer in, exactly. in particular. Yeah. And you really have to ask yourself when you first the patient is, do I really think this person has a DVT? Like that's really the thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, your wealth criteria gives you that in a more systematic way, but it's kind of getting that gestalt feeling. Do I really think a DVT is going on? Hi, this person has diabetes. They have. Um, their white blood cell count is 38, they have bullying on their swollen leg, and they have crepitus, and maybe DVT, maybe it's necrotizing infection, and we need to do something about that. Does that make sense? And their DVT, their D-dimer is probably going to come back elevated. Exactly. So you want to consider that. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. And on the flip side with D-dimer, if you have a high clinical suspicion of them having a DVT, say they've had one before, they're on estrogen, they have thrombophilia, they have a family history of it, of DVTs, if you're doing a D-dimer, you're not achieving anything there. You're because, not. Right? Because, because you're definitely going to do the ultrasound, and likely you're just going to empirically treat if, they, if they're that high risk. So Perfect. the D-dimer Perfect. is really good for that kind of intermediate group. It's not good on either side of it. That said, a lot of internists, if you um, consult to admit with a DVT, um, they'll ask for a D-dimer. So Exactly. You know. And sometimes they actually do that more to test their test, right? Yeah. Like to validate whatever test that they're using to get you know, with their population that they're studying and stuff, you know, yeah. um, see how good the test is doing. That's more with the, the, the providers and the people who make the D-dimer uh, D assay and stuff. It's not yeah. for us to worry, uh, not for us to, uh, to worry about it. So don't get D-dimeritis. The D-dimer is a very useful test and it's in a subset of people who are low risk to rule it out. If you're moderate and high risk, you're basically wasting everybody's time by doing the D-dimer and just getting all this extraneous information that we don't know what to do about, right? So perfect. Beautiful. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Oh, we got to talk about prevention, my friend. There you go. Thromboembolic disease. How, how are you going to prevent it, Mike? 
I guess we're talking hospital setting, probably, because that's Perfect. a huge chunk I of it. Talk about it in a hospital setting. Yeah, exactly. So, so the the easy answer here, and I always try and go with the easy answer, is every hospital for accreditation in Canada now needs to have a VTE uh, prophylaxis sheet on admission for patients. So, if you're working in a hospital, I should hope you have that sheet. Um, that has your risk factors and what you need to consider. Essentially, a lot of it goes along the Wells criteria. Perfect. And then there's kind of uh, steps along that algorithm too, and every hospital will be a little bit different. But essentially, if, if you think that they're, they're they're at a slight risk, so say they're perfectly healthy, but they're going to be immobile for you know more than three days, um, then compression stockings. You, you always want to encourage mobility if possible. Get patients up and walking. Let their legs do their own compression stocking effect. Um, but compression stockings when um, they're supine in bed. Uh, the next step up from that is uh, low molecular weight heparin um, while they're in Good inpatient. Stock. And um, maybe of note in that, upon discharge or when they become mobile, you can discontinue that heparin. You don't need to Perfect. continue that afterwards. Um, exactly. exactly. So it's really just for their hospitalization or as long as they're in mobile, right? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. So what we're talking about, the acute... Um, medical patient, nice little scoring tool. Might hear something called the Padua score. Um, basically, you know, there's Rogers and Caprini score. We'll talk about them for a little bit. Those are for your surgical patients, right? To kind of say, okay, you just had surgery. How can I stratify you for um, 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 your risk of the DVT? The one for medical patients that is often used something called the Padua score. And basically, it's a, it's a very similar to the Wells criteria. Um, um, I'm not going to go through it. You know what I mean? Just Google it and stuff. Yeah. And it's basically weighted. Different things are weighted. And usually if you have a score of greater than four, um, um, you need to use some type of prophylaxis for that hospital patient. And you mentioned it. Your hospital patients, um, um, really the prophylaxis is really unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight um, uh, uh, um, 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 heparin or so, right? So just keep that in mind. You can use, for people who have a Padua score, um, who have a Purdue score under four, you can use compression stockings or, my friend, intermittent pneumatic compression. There you go. Oh, yeah, that's Perfect. what I forgot to mention. Thank you. Intermittent compression, yes. Intermittent compression. Beautiful. Oh, Dr. De so we talked about your medical patients. Key take-home messages, use some type of validated score. Padua score is oftentimes uh, uh, used. I'm not going to go through the thing. It's very similar to the Wells criteria. And basically what allows us you to make an evidence-based decision on estimation of VTE risk. Doing those are That applies to medical patients. Hi, you're coming in with heart failure. Hi, oh, I still need to remember my DVT risk. I'm going to compute my Padua score. If it's under four, I can go with uh, early ambulation, compression stockings. If it's above four, I've got to use some type of uh, a pharmacologic prophylaxis. And for pharmacologic prophylaxis, when we're talking about it for medical patients, it's really unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin for at a low dose. That's what he's talking about. We can't use those fancy... We can't use dabagantran or rivaroxaban in that patient population yet. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also because those those medications are more appropriate for long-term therapy, which you're anticipating for most of the patients, they wouldn't be on at home. Exactly. exactly. Unless they were on admission, obviously. Perfect, perfect. And that's cool. And always remember, too, like, if you've got medical patients and they're bleeding, like, they came inside hospital because they had a massive GI bleed and they have a high-risk ulcer, remember, you have to consider what is their bleeding risk as well, too, right? Yep. And it doesn't mean that you don't give them pharmacologic prophylaxis, right? But you might wait a little bit before starting it, right? Like, okay, you know, most bleeding usually stops in 48 hours, right? So if I have, like, a GI bleed, my chance of re-bleeding is highest in that first 48 hours, right? So if I'm at a really, really high chance of re 
degree bleeding. I'm not going to necessarily start that person on Lovenoc just after the gastroenterologist argon laser probe has just stopped coagulating that uh, massive high-grade ulcer, right? You're yeah. going to probably wait a day or two, wait for the and then start your pharmacologic prophylaxis that happen. So always remember to consider your bleeding risk as well, too. Yep, same thing with uh, diagnosing and managing atrial fibrillation. But yeah, especially in those surgical patients with a risk of bleeding, um, they'll often just get mechanical prophylaxis, um, which is you know the best you want to do to to uh, balance the bleeding risk. Perfect, excellent. So, Doctor Bouchard, we talked about our medical patients. What about our surgical patients, man? So, even in the Padua score, it gives you um, kind of an indication of that that. Surgical patients is one of the criteria in there. And every surgical patient is at a higher risk of uh, VTE. Yeah. Um, just because of the Virchow's or Virchow's triad, if you want to go through that. Um, it's an assault on their body. They're getting cut open, sliced and diced. They have medications pumped through them. They're immobile um, for a period of time. Um, there's a difference between minor, minor and major surgical procedures. But in general, for every major surgical procedure where there's not a, a bleeding risk, a major bleeding risk from it, they should all be on, on chemoprophylaxis for DVT. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And remember our, our scoring systems for our surgical patients. There's a bunch of different scoring systems that we can use. There's one called Rogers score. There's one called the Caprini score. They're basically just, you know, they're similar to the well. They look at different types. of. So I don't want to go through them. You can Google them and we can put them in the show notes so people can actually have this as a table. Um, and they can, they stratify people into kind of very low, low, um, moderate, and then higher risk. And then depending on your risk strata, that's going to be what kind of prophylaxis that you need, right? So low and very low, uh, a low and very low uh, people might be able to just get away with early ambulation. Hi, 26-year-old person comes inside, perfectly healthy, has coming inside for elective gallbladder surgery, and it's going to be laparoscopic. That's fairly low risk. Does that make sense? So early ambulation is probably going to be just fine for them, right? Yeah. Um, um, if you're anywhere into the low, uh, um, a bit higher, moderate, and definitely into the higher risk, you want to use some type of uh, some type of chemo. Uh, uh, chemoprophylaxis. I just want to talk about this briefly because this comes up a lot. Hip arthroscopy, um, um, hip uh, replacements, knee replacement, and hip fracture surgery, right? That's classified as major orthopedic surgery, right? Yeah, absolutely. When you have somebody and they have had a hip, uh, um, uh, had a hip replacement or they had a knee replacement, you got to put them on prophylaxis. Is that crystal clear? And usually the prophylaxis period is for 10 to 14 days, right? Yeah. And for hip fracture and knee fracture surgery, what are your options? You can use regular aspirin for 10 to 14 days can be an option, right? You can use Lovenox or Loma, I should say Lovenox, low molecular weight heparin. You can use unfractionated <laughs> heparin. Yeah. You can use Coumadin. You can use your fancy agents like Apixaban and Dibagantran and and rivaroxaban, you can use those agents as well too, right? And those are where those agents are used a lot um, um, for these kind of short periods of chemoprophylaxis or so, right? If you have hip fracture surgery, the list is roughly the same, except you can't use as yet those fancy, those fancy um, things like dabagantran, rivaroxaban, epixaban. We just don't have the evidence for them in that hip fracture uh, uh, um, patient or so, right? Yeah. So just think about it for major orthopedic surgery. Um, if you're getting a knee or you're getting a hip replacement, usually 10 to 14 days of prophylaxis. Um, uh, um, and I have a lot of different options, including just regular aspirin can be the chemo uh, prophylactic option, right? Um, if you're going for hip fracture surgery, lots of options as well, too. Same options as before, minus 
all of my newer agents, right? My NOACs. Yes, absolutely. Beautiful. Nice work, Mike. Now, keep in mind when you're doing prophylaxis, you know, you get patients, you know, there's, there's the chest talks about this and stuff. You know, there's prophylactic guidelines for people going through brain surgery, pro spinal surgery. I right? Like really, really looking at the bleed. Right. Um, so if you have a high risk surgery, you don't want to bleed into your brain. It's not a good idea. Bleed into your spinal cord. Oftentimes, initially, they'll put people on intermittent pneumatic compression for a couple days, a few days until the bleeding risk subsides, and then they'll go to chemoprophylaxis, right? So, which is usually something like a low molecular weight heparin or an unfractionated heparin. So just remember that that's an option as well, too. If you have a patient and you're like, crap, if this person bleeds, I could be effed, right? Then don't put them on chemoprophylaxis, right? You're going to wait until that bleeding risk subsides and then you're going to start the prophylaxis. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Crystal Flair, Dr. Bouchard. Beautiful. Because occasionally you get these patients that come back and, and they're post-craniotomy and, and, and post-spinal surgery for Mets or bad trauma patients come back and you're like, WTF, what do I do, right? It's common sense, right? If the bleeding risk is uber high, remember, your friend intermittent pneumatic compression is a great form of prophylaxis and the type of bleeding risk has the other stuff. So use that. Yeah, and honestly, just getting patients mobile because most patients can get mobile. Like if Excellent. I if I can get them walking up at all, you know, post hip fracture especially. But Brady Bouchard, you can get the average patient walking up because you're so flipping handsome. That's your <laughs> thing to walk up. There you go. They arrive and they walk, right? Hey, even even if they're the heart the bad heart failure patient, they can walk for you know five minutes once every couple hours and. Oh boy! Exactly. You know, they do their exactly. own calf compression. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. So remember, take-home messages is, okay, well, you got a person, remember your prophylaxis, people. DVT is a big cause of in-hospital issues. Um, you don't want people getting in-hospital PEs. We've already kind of talked about PEs. I don't want to, I don't want to rehash through that. So remember, it's prevention, prevention, prevention. Use your Rogers, use your Caprini, use your Padua score, risk stratify people, and then prophylax them appropriately, right? And there's lots of help on this and stuff. And maybe we can that in some of the show notes. And as well, too, remember to consider your friend the pretest probability when you're concerned about what a patient might actually have it. That's a good friend, the Wells criteria. And remember, don't get D-dimeritis. D-dimer is only really useful for people who are low risk on their Wells score. If you're higher risk, for God's sake, don't do a D-dimer, right? They're going to need a more definitive testing. Exactly. But we've got to talk about treatment now. Okay, yeah, so exactly. I have a big plot. What am I going to do now? Dr. Bouchard, the sexy Dr. Bouchard. Beautiful. So uh, in general, you should be treating with uh, low molecular weight heparin rather than unfractionated heparin. Um, there's good evidence that, especially on an outpatient basis, it's it's definitely easier to do. Um, there, You don't need to monitor it. Um, it's dosed nicely based on weight. Patients spend less time sub and super therapeutic. Um, so an, an oxyparin, one milligram per kilo BID would be a standard dose. You can do it uh, once a day at a 1.5 milligram per kilo dose if you want. Um, and they can be bridged depending on how long they're going to be on it over to either warfarin or one of the NOACs as well. Perfect. Perfect. So they can actually, yeah. excellent. And then the, and then the, the thing that different or it's different for patients in there, really for all patients, that's, that part's the same. Um, the difference is for how long you treat. And so there's, uh, to be honest, even researching this topic, there's not a lot of great evidence, and hematologists, I think, will admit that as well. There's not a lot of great studies on necessarily length of time. 
yeah, like yeah. the length of time for anticoagulation. But in general, patients with a first provoked uh, DVT should be treated for three months because they, they have a trigger. Um, it's the first one they've ever had. As far as you know, they're not going to have a recurrence. Um, that's the shortest time period you would treat for three months. Everybody else is longer than that. Um, in patients with a DVT and an ongoing trigger, you treat indefinitely or until the trigger resolves. I think that one's kind of common sense. Patients with a first unprovoked, so you don't find a diagnosis or you don't find why they had their clot, um, should usually be on longer-term therapy. This is where it kind of gets a little bit hazy. Iffy. This is where we don't know, like, the length of time. Yeah. We know that probably if you have a provoked one, probably three months is is okay, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, whether that's a transient surgical risk factor or something, right? Yeah. It's probably okay. It's if you have an unprovoked clot. We know that, and the guideline we'll talk about that, it just says greater than three months, right? So yeah. whether that's six months, whether that's nine months, we know. We're, we're like, we're not sure, right? So at different places, we'll anticoagulate people for different lengths of time. I always find, like, that's where bleeding risk comes in, right? Oh, man, you know what I mean? This person is falling, or this person has five GI bleeds in the last two years, right? Like, how long are we going to have this person on this, right? So some of those other factors will uh, key into place. But provoke clots, usually about three months, um, unprovoked clots, some period longer than that, right? Yep. Or recurrent clots, some period uh, longer than that. Exact numbers, we're not really sure, right? What we do know is after they finish their anticoagulation, you know, what's the biggest thing that they can get, that, what's the biggest complication they can get is one, is post-slobitic pain, right? They can just have pain in their leg because they just had a clot there. And the next thing is they get clot recurrence, right? Exactly. So, uh, uh, um, so for the pain, compression stops. Right. So get your patients in compressions. It prophylaxes against that. Right. And I should say prophylax. It reduces the chance of that happening. And consider regular old aspirin after they consider their course, especially if they have another good reason to be on aspirin. Right. Because that's actually been shown to actually reduce the rate of clots of recurrence after their anticoagulation, uh, um, after their period of time of anticoagulation. That there's a couple studies of just keeping them on NOACs for a really long time. If you have lots of cash, that's another option as well, too, to lower recurrence. It's kind of a no duh, of course, it would lower recurrence, you know. But again, you know, you know, that is a, well, I'm not exactly sure what the end point in that particular thing is going to be, but consider that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, topical NSAIDs as well for the treatment of that uh, phlebitic pain as well. Perfect. Yeah. Um, what else? My favorite uh, fact in here uh, coming out of residency was. Uh, really counterintuitively for me, um, male patients actually with their first unprovoked clot are at a higher risk of recurrence. Um, yeah. They don't really know why. I don't know why. I think it's just because women have a, I'm guessing, have a higher baseline risk so that if they have a clot, it's not such a huge leap. Like it wasn't such a huge trigger that we don't know about. And in, in males, because they're so unlikely to have a clot, if they actually do end up having a clot, there's probably something going on there that's going to cause a recurrence. Perfect. And very good. And how do you know, like, exactly, like, when you think about unprovoked clots, right? Like, it doesn't mean that people get a full body MRI, but it means that you got to start saying, okay, could there be something, could this person have a melanoma that's metastasizing that I'm just not noticing, right? Yeah. Or on their back, there's a... So you have to kind of ask yourself those kinds of questions, right? Like, it does not mean, because I've actually shown this, that you give people a full body MRI and, and no, 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 no. They need a good history and physical exam and you're looking for risk factors that they could potentially have something like um, a cancer, right? Which can which can uh, put people at risk of blood clots or so, right? Exactly. So, You're leading um, right into my next point, Mike. That was lovely. About whether you Oh, do... my God. We're like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> yeah. Lady yeah. Bouchard is the world's sexy. I led into the world's sexiest man. You, you totally did. A compliment. Yeah. So if you, they've had a first unprovoked clot, do you screen for cancer? 
And the answer seems to be with lab tests, perhaps. With imaging tests, no. No, exactly. Yeah. Big study came out in 2015 that said if you just CT scan people, like, for S's and G's, you know what I mean? And stuff like for that, it, it's not, it, it, it doesn't increase your yield rate, right? Exactly. So it's kind of good history and physical exam. If there's uh, if there's something, oh, hi, I'm having rectal bleeding for the last six years and I've been losing weight for the last eight months, then yeah, you're going to do some more investigations, right? But you don't want to necessarily do the full body MRI straight away. It just, it's not cost effective and you're not necessarily going to find all that much more. Exactly. Between the two groups that had imaging and not, they had um, a similar background risk of cancer. And at one year, they had a similar rate of diagnosed cancers. Perfect. Doing it for S's and G's. Just doing it for the hell of it. Oh, you had an unprovoked clot. Let's just scan you from your chip because you may have like a lung cancer or something like that. But we may find. We know that strategy does not work, right? Yeah. So don't do a history, do a physical exam, let those things and your risk factors guide you into the appropriate next test, next laboratory test, next investigation. We don't have sort of, you know, this this evidence for this sort of empiric a la carte, you know, super scan all, you know what I mean, and stuff, and let's hope for the best to find. That's not the best uh, approach. Exactly. And the other thing that comes out of having clots, whether you're looking for uh, the weird and wonderful stuff, is whether you do a thrombophilia screen. Um, there's actually not really good evidence for this, um, even in unprovoked clots. Maybe in, so there's some evidence maybe um, that it's worth doing in young patients, so those less than 40 years old, with a first unprovoked DVT and a strong family history. So greater than two, greater than two first degree family members with symptomatic thrombus. Um, so really, that's going to be a very small minority of your patients. Um, exactly. And there's two reasons for that. One is that there's a low incidence of um, DVT causing thrombophilias in the first place. And uh, secondly, the factor V laden, which is the most common um, abnormality we have, which is maybe five to 6% of the population, doesn't increase your DVT risk significantly to the point where you would be worried about lifelong anticoagulation just after Perfect. the first unprovoked DVT. Exactly. And that's basically the question you're trying to ask. Oh, if I find out one of these things, are you going to be on anticoagulation for the rest of your life? So A, a lot of these tests have a huge false positive right like so these yep. things come back prothrombin variants come back protein c protein s so these screening things come back and you really have to take them with a grain of salt right because really you're asking am i going to keep you on anticoagulation for the rest of your life to prevent badness does that make sense and yep. that's why it really is people um uh, um with as you say, two first degree, um, um, two first degree relatives, right? Um, um, and we don't have a lot of evidence for doing these screens, even though it's something we always do after you finish your course: protein C, protein S, antibiotic deficiency, um, prothrombin variants, factor V Leiden, antiphospholipid antibody, you know what I mean, and stuff, anti-cardiac antibody. It's like your hematology, you know what I mean? That's that fellows and 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 specialists come in, and that's like they blurt out all this blood work. Right? We don't have a lot of evidence for it, right? Like we don't exactly. have a whole lot of evidence for it. Right? Really, the question you're trying to ask is, are you going to keep this person in violation for the rest of their life, right? Or, and, and, and getting that does not help us to answer that question in the vast majority of cases. Exactly. Perfect. Beautiful. So what are we going to talk about next week, Mike? Uh, I don't know. Pick a topic, Dr. Bouchard. Pick a topic. Sounds good. Uh... How about something topical? And you probably wouldn't even have too much of this, Sue Lookout. Immigrants. The very, very good topic. Excellent. There you go. Yeah. 
Excellent. Like, Im- like, like, um, um, immigrant health. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, awesome. exactly. Yeah. And here in the, in the 90 topics, it's the periodic health assessment of newly arrived, uh, immigrants, um, uh, modifying your approach for cultural context, that sort of thing. Perfect. You know what? I think that's a great idea. I think that is a great, 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 great idea. And I think that's a topic that is well worthy of our attention and stuff. Yeah, very, very topical right now with the with our refugee program. So exactly, exactly. No, no, I think that's I think that is fantastic. And I think that is a very, very good uh, topic. And you know what? You know, what we should talk about I'm not even sure if this is a, a top 100 topic, but it should be and it should be up there. Right up there with ACS and DDT, and it's probably one of you know what we should talk about. Brent? We should talk about poverty. Like we should talk about social determinants of health. Yeah. Like I'm surprised you because when I look at the list of 100 topics, like I'm like, why isn't that on there? Is it on there? Someone is it on there, Brady? Uh, I don't think it is, to be honest. Like, why isn't poverty on one of our top 100 topics, right? Yeah. And and poverty risk factors and social determinants of health. You're right. right. It really should be. It should be. It's a super important topic. If we're, totally gonna talk about, if we're going to talk about belly pain, and we're going to talk about ACS, then we better as well talk about poverty, right? And 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 what we can uh, and what we can do for poverty reduction strategies, affecting ways of uh, of, of advocacy, those types of uh, things, and being able to get our patients additional resources. Or so. so I say, poverty. Beautiful. Let, let's try and merge them together, even because some of, a lot of that will happen for immigrants. Well, certainly refugee immigrants, anyways. Perfect. Perfect. Right. Always a blast. Always a blast, Mike. See you next week. All right, take care.